this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. You are listening to The Playlist Podcast, a series of brief discussions on modern movies. All episodes can be found at theplaylist.net. I'm your host, Eric McClanahan, and this episode comes to you in two parts. An appreciation of late Polish auteur Andrzej Zulowski and a review of his final film, Cosmos, comes in the second half. We open on my interview with Anna Rose Homer, director of the new indie film, The Fits. Back in January, when the playlist caught the Sundance premiere of The Fits, a distinctly cinematic coming-of-age story about a preteen girl's transition from tomboy boxer to competitive dancer, our critic wrote, You have to be in a specific sort of mood and in a peculiar frame of mind to fully immerse yourself into a film like The Fits and walk away feeling like you've seen something special. Indeed, the pleasures from watching The Fits are many and varied, but extremely subtle. One undeniable virtue, though, is the impressive filmmaking on display from director Anna Rose Homer, here making her feature-length debut and relying on mood, atmospheric visual storytelling, and a brilliantly constructed, dense sound design. The film is expanding slowly to more art house theaters in the coming weeks, as well as on VOD soon. Here's my interview with Homer. fits it's not it's not it's by no means a typical dance film and it's by no means a typical coming of age film but it certainly has those elements yeah. um so how would you describe this movie to people i've started to describe it like more and more sparsely i think i think <laughs> um but i describe it as a genre blending film um which brings the audience into the singular perspective of an 11-year-old girl named Tony. Tony is played by Royalty Hightower, who seems like yes. qu- quite a find, I would say. She's and, incredible. Yeah, talk about that. I mean, she was a part of, was it Q Kids, the dance team that you found? Yeah, one of our early ideas was to cast all of the girls in the film from the same dance team. Um, and we simultaneously were searching for a dance team and a dance form, the original kind of outline did not dictate that we needed to work with a drill team or take place in Cincinnati that came from finding the Q kids. Um, And, you know, we were hoping we would find all of the parts. And I think we were open conceptually to the idea of Tony not being on the team, but I was really hoping for it. But uh, it was very serendipitous. We, we We ended up casting 45 girls in the film from the Q kids. There's a couple hundred of them in reality. And, Royalty has been dancing with the Q kids since she was six and we saw her read on day one and she really blew me away. Yeah, I mean, naturally. Had, so was Royalty, um, was she also accustomed to like the boxing kind of stuff that you had no. to go through? <laughs> she wow. had to train. She trained for about three weeks. I think she cites that as the most challenging part <laughs> of the process for her because there's just new muscle groups and, you know, she's an athlete. So mm-hmm. a lot of things probably came easier to her than than others but it was definitely a challenge um 
but she's like a natural. The one of the we trained at first with a professional boxer, Frank Rhodes, and he was like, "You should box," and she was like, "No thanks." Uh, <laughs> and then she spent some time with uh, Deshaun Minor, who plays Jermaine in the film, her brother, mm-hmm. and he's you know he's a junior Olympian uh, level ranked three in the country, just incredible talent as a boxer. And he was blown away also at the speed at which royalty was able to pick up the combinations. Um, I think it's that dance and boxing are really close and the skill sets do cross over. Um, and she was able to pick up on the choreography and the combinations and kind of anticipate the movements of another body like you do in dance. Um, it's a real gift. Um, and she was incredible, but yeah, I don't think she enjoyed, she's not going to pursue boxing. (laughs) We we won't see her going for the uh, the welterweight championship in a few years. Mm-mm. No, okay. Well, or that's like understandable. Flyweight. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I got to get the weights right. Well, I mean, maybe she's got an acting uh, career ahead of her because man, it's like I love the way you train the camera so much on her face, and you already talked about in your description of the film to people like this is this is a movie, one of those movies. It's actually one of my favorite kinds of movies where you literally put us, the audience, into the mind, into the perspective of a character. Um, I, I just feel like cinema can do that in such a more vibrant way than something like a novel because like we can see the things that the character sees and we can feel and hear things the way they do and it'll like you know give us empathy for other people I love that yeah. about movies um, I'd love you know talk about that like uh, for this movie and also like are there other movies that you that you've seen that you love that do that in a specific way yeah, I mean, that was always, like, all of the craft decisions that we made were about amplifying that singular perspective. And it's, it is a very subjective experience. And I think it, you know, it allows you to break with reality because you're, you're showcasing a subjective reality. And that was really exciting. And it really, you know, we wanted to play around with what it felt like to be 11. Um, and some of those things are, you know, in our memories, I, I co-wrote this with my producer, Lisa Kiroff and my editor, Celia Davis, and we, we shared a lot of memories and we couldn't quite articulate if the memories were right or not, <laughs> like if these things really happened. And so I think that kind of dreamy, nostalgic quality uh, starts to seep into the film. In terms of like references, one of the biggest references for our film uh, is actually Steve McQueen's Hunger. Oh, nice. And I, I'm i just a huge fan of that film in general, really shifted my perspective when I, when I saw it when it first came out. But I think uh, what he does so well is um, kind of bring you into this space of the mind of a, of a character. Um, and he's really articulating cinema in a kind of poetic way that, that we really loved both, both as a visual reference, um, but then also kind of as a construct, like how you construct uh, a narrative around a point of view. Right. I mean, and then, I mean, the sound design and the, you know, the music work in something like hunger, I could see an analogous, uh, a, a lot of analogs there to your film as well. I mean, using that sound design, which I feel like, Filmmakers like you, young filmmakers, are really starting to realize what a valuable tool sound is yeah. to the movie experience. And it's like it's like a cheap special effect that you can use, I imagine. Yeah. It was really exciting on this film because we knew when we were writing the script, we would write entire scenes and realize that so much of the action and and kind of plot was happening off screen. And we knew sound would be a huge tool both to just... Uh, convey perspective, but also clue the audience in onto some shifts in tone, et cetera. Um, 
So we actually did something which I've never done on a film before, which was we brought our sound designer on before we started shooting. Uh, and our sound designer and location sound mixer, uh, myself, my editor, my producer, we we had a whole meeting about sound strategy. Um, and it was really incredible kind of being able to think about those things from the beginning. So a lot of the sound that you hear in the film you know, it's not uh, Foley, although we did do some Foley work, um, but it's actually wild sound captured on location with our cast. Um, and it was really incredible, I think, gift to be able to strategize about sound in that way for this film. Do people that you, you might talk to about the film, do they ever get tripped up on those very subjective elements where like certain dialogue is obscured because, you know, we're trying to see it from royalties, her character's perspective. So she can't always hear, you know, these right. people talking. Do people get hung up on that? Do you have to explain that a lot? I think people start to relax into that um, once they realize there's a set of rules. You have to be very consistent about your rules if you're going to kind of bring the audience into that space. One of the references we used in that regard was Kelly Reichardt's Meek's Cutoff, where Wonderful. the women are not uh, privy to these conversations and these like key decision-making moments. They're happening a couple hundred feet away. Mm -hmm. But you're forced to be with the women. You can't quite hear what the men are talking about. And I really like that tension that it provides. And I think like as an 11-year-old, adults are not coming around saying, here are all the answers, <laughs> you know? Um, it's you really, and even your peers, the older girls, they seem to know something and be talking about something that you aren't part of. And so we wanted to kind of play around with that tension and uncomfortability. Uh, in order to do that, we need to bring the audience, exactly what you said, into uh, Tony's character's space. You've played a lot of roles. You've done a lot of like camera department work, a lot of grip work on mm -hmm. sets. Um, I love looking that kind of stuff up to see, you know, like you're you're a new filmmaker to me. And it's like, oh, wow, she worked uh, on tiny furniture. She worked yeah. on after school. Like I'm a big Antonio Campos fan, actually. And Same. yeah, I love the work that they're doing at Borderline Films. Like those guys blow me away. And I think some of the is it right? The, the some of your the people that did the score for your film worked on some of their films. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Danny Bensey and Sondra Jurians did the score for like Martha Marcy May Marlene and right. uh, Enemy and a lot of films I admire. Right, right. So I, so you've done, you know, you've worked on other films that are like yours, you know, independent, new modern independent films. But also uh, I saw you worked on the first Twilight movie. So yeah, uh, it was a very <laughs> tiny part of that. Okay. Scene. <laughs> Maybe it's for the best. Like, uh, it was, um, you know, I was essentially like a camera PA, but I was like a second second for the camera department for Twilight was larger than the entire crew for the fifth. But I, you know, I learned, I wanted to see how a big set was run. And, uh, you know, I came up in the camera department. So uh, I went to school to be a DP and I did, you know, mostly worked as a first AC and an operator, but also, you know, on, you know, movies with my peers uh, would fill in wherever if it's gripping or being an electric or, um, you know, whatever kind of needs, because I think, you know, I was always so grateful to have the experience to see how those sets were run um, and be a part. And I know, you know, having coming from the crew side, you know, that although those kind of technical positions are a lot of just women power at, or manpower uh hours uh it's also like you need those people to make a movie work um and being on the other side i think it definitely has colored my leadership style on set and um i'm i'm really grateful that i've come up uh in crew 
Yeah, I mean, I could see how valuable. I mean, you want to kind of learn as many roles as possible so you could be the best director possible. I would imagine. So, I could I could see the value in that, but also, um, I guess I, I hate to do this, and you know, forgive me. You probably are getting asked questions like this, but uh, one long story short, when I watched your movie, I really liked the fits, but I also couldn't help thinking like, wow, this filmmaker is going to do something really special you know get when she gets a little money she'll have some more money she's gonna really <laughs> blow us away and i guess i want to start there before i want to know sort of what your career aspirations do you want to work on bigger movies um do you get asked do, do you is that annoy you do people like almost um maybe it's a modern day problem where we're always looking to the next thing but yeah. um yeah but i i do want to say i like your film but i couldn't help but think like wow she's gonna do something amazing someday <laughs> I, don't, I don't know is that a problem or no i mean i want to have a sustainable career as a director and i think um you know i've done a lot of things on film sets um but i definitely love this experience as a director and want to want to continue to do that um you know we made the fits in a really special way it was entirely grant funded and you know, there were many limitations that we were, that we embraced. And I think that we, like, I love working in that space. And it really pushed me, especially as a first time director, to articulate what really needed to be on screen. And, and I think make a really lean and tight film, which ultimately are my favorite types of movies. (laughs) Um, But that doesn't mean that I want to, you know, I want to, I want the people who work on my films to have careers uh, and be able to sustain families. And, um, you know, there is a business side to filmmaking that I don't think you, we can ignore. Um, that doesn't mean, uh, that I don't want to make relevant, exciting cinema. I do. I think it's a balancing act. And I, I think that certain stories demand certain tools and some of those tools are, are budget. You know, if you want to go into a certain world or, or build a world from scratch, um, you know, there's money involved in that. And I think that you can be smart and you can be frugal. Um, and you can also, you know, value your collaborators, um, and their worth on set. And, you know, I'm, I'm just excited about continuing to work. And I think that, um, yeah, it'll grow as I grow. Um, and, I don't think like I don't see any contradiction in that. I know that some people are like um, maybe do, but I, I I'm excited about it. That's that's exciting to hear too, and I feel like that's a like your viewpoint on it is much more refreshingly modern. And like you're really big. I noticed this in other v- interviews I've listened to with you. Like you're big on acknowledging your collaborators. Like you're not you're not one of these auteurist men. I'm I'm guessing you don't strike me as one of those auteurs. Like I did every. Like you're not going to put your name on like eight different credits for the movie. Yeah. Like you you acknowledge your collaborators. I think that's really refreshing. But um, to keep the focus on you, do you feel? Um, you know, you're, you're a woman, you're, there's not enough, you know, female filmmakers right now. And that's definitely been a talking point the last few years, which is really great to get that conversation yeah. to hopefully, you know, push the ball, the needle a little further. Let's make these things more fair and balanced, more opportunities. But do you, does that, do you ever feel pressure, you know, like, Oh, I, I have to do something. Do you feel any pressure from that? Because you're sort of an early one out the gate and what hopefully five, 10 years, there'll be a lot of, you know, young female filmmakers. Yeah. I think, you know, for me, one of the things that is frustrating about it is that you, you know, I should, I should only be representing my work as me. And there's this idea that if you mess up or fail or you don't 
you know, kind of hit these box office numbers that you're somewhat reflecting on another female filmmaker's ability to create strong content that succeeds in the box office. And I don't think that that uh, responsibility is like carries across uh, outside of these fringe categories of filmmakers, either for women, uh, filmmakers of color, or even, you know, the compounding fact of, of women of color uh, in the, in the director's seat. Um, and there's this idea that you're representative of this large category and their capacity to do their jobs. And that's just not true. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's a little bit, it's exciting. I think that it's, uh, you know, this big conversation, uh, and what I can do, uh, is to continue to work. And, um, it's not just females in the director's chair, but it's, uh, you know, it's female voices on screen. Uh, it's, um, you know, camera women and crew and, you know, it's, I think it's systematic and it's also not just a problem in the film industry, but you know, what's exciting, what's exciting is that, you know, for so long, there's been this very narrow gaze of what, um, kind of the voices on and off screen. And I think that's expanding. Uh, and that ultimately I think is exciting because I think audiences want to see reflections of many types of people on film. Um, and, and I think we're getting there. I, I agree. I mean, it's nice to have a balanced diet in cinema. I mean, I, I was I caught up with her movie the same week I was um, catching up or sort of researching old Brian De Palma films because uh-huh. that documentary is coming out about him. Yeah. And, it, you know, I, I've realized I'm a bigger fan than I might have even known of Brian De Palma. But wow, talk about I mean, I think he is one of those not so much a shining example, but an example of what you're talking about of a certain gaze that has existed in cinema, you know, Mm -hmm. a very male heterosexual gaze that um, while I have to admit I'm a part of that uh, demographic. It It's so refreshing. Like, to me, as much as I was enjoying watching, like, The Untouchables or Body Double, some of these older De Palma movies, something about the fits just felt, like, reinvigorating because it was giving me something. It was giving me that perspective that I was not getting and don't get very often. So um, kudos to you. I don't really know if there's a question. I appreciate that. <laughs> not really a question in there, but it was just kind of interesting to be watching all these De Palma movies. And then it's like, here's your wonderful little tight movie like you said and it's just a complete opposite thing and it's um it was very refreshing so you talked about your movie as like a certain kind of movie and uh you're like those are the kind of movies that i like um so what are the kind of movies that will for instance like get you out to the movie theater these days actually this year i've been making like a really conscious effort to try to go to the movies more um because i want to continue to see work in those spaces and um you can literally vote for that with your dollar at the box office. So uh-huh. I've been, I've been trying to be more conscious about that. I really love retrospectives um, and seeing old work. Um, the museum of the moving image did this amazing uh, Fisk series. And I love seeing like a, you know, a series curated around somebody's body of work. That's not a director. And I think that that was really exciting. Um and then things like at the Metrograph, I got to see a Technicolor original IB print of Singing in the Rain, things like that, oh, where wow. you don't get to see, you know, that type of work, you know, projected. Uh, and it's and it's like if I, you want to see more of that, you should see it, you know. And then also this year, I was uh, made a pledge to watch a, a film directed by a woman 
once a week. Um, nice. It's called 52 Films by Women. So making a conscious effort of doing that and doing that in the box office when I can. Um, and then also, you know, I love cinema also as like an escape. And, um, you know, there are some movies that are just so fun to see big uh, and hear big. I actually like love 5-1. And I think that people forget that that's such a big part of the cinema experience is like hearing it and being surrounded um, by sound. And I think that that's something you just can't, you know, you can have a, maybe some people have home entertainment systems that are better than mine, but, but yeah, I, I just, I've been trying to do it more. And, and so far I love, I love that routine and, you know, it's something that I kind of am like returning to and, and trying to do it whenever I can. That's uh, you're, you're a filmmaker after my heart. I'm a projectionist <laughs> at a couple theaters out in Portland. So uh, I still we work at an art museum is one of the places I still project 35 millimeter. I, I projected yeah. Ozu's Late Spring last week. And but, yeah, I mean, you watching a movie like that, that's the only place you wouldn't. So I think people wouldn't think of that as like something I got to see in the big screen. But yeah. really, that's the only place to like submerge yourself into that film, you know? And yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, thank you for saying that because that's a big thing is like voting with your dollars. It's something we say on our other podcasts a lot, like when we're, we're fighting for these little movies to be seen. So that's, that's really heartening to hear. Was the, um, you, you mentioned the retrospective Fisk. Is that Jack Fisk? The production? Yeah, Jack Fisk. Oh, wow. What kind of stuff did they show? There will be blood. Uh, I think they showed almost all his work, but I, I'm a, I saw, uh, there will be blood. Nice. Um, projected also. Uh, and I mean, it was just incredible. Uh, but I loved that grouping around a production designer's body of work, and you really got to see his influence, you know, and in when it touched and intersected with these different directors' voices. Um, but yeah, I loved that idea of a series and an auteur who's not the director, really, you know? <laughs> that's uh, that's really cool because, you know, There Will Be Blood has a sort of, um, maybe atonal is not the right word, but a very sort of avant-garde score, you know, by yeah. Johnny Greenwood. And um, it's another- my favorite score of, oh, like, of the course. last decade. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I might take all his three scores for the last three PTA movies are like my yeah. favorite. I mean, the work he did on Inherent Vice, nobody talks about it. It's amazing. <laughs> it's so good. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, we are on a similar wavelength. That's That's great. Um, it makes me think of the earlier work that PTA did with um, John Bryan, the scores that he did. Mm-hmm. I th- I wrote down John Bryan when I was watching your movie because oh, I felt cool. like the Punch Drunk Love score has a very bleepy, bloopy sort of synthy, you know, we're using yeah. electronic sounds and it's manipulated like that in the fits as well. And then there's this, um, I'm wondering if you saw this indie movie called Cretia that's kind of yeah. come out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I I really love Cretia. Uh, oh, yeah. I I got to catch it last year um, in the festival circuit and just like really made me uncomfortable in a very good way. Like, you know, cinema doesn't always have to make you feel good. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I, I, uh, I love Cretia. Yeah. I mean, that, that anxiety that the score provokes in you, I, that's what made me think of, I I thought of it while watching the fits as well, but in a different way, it's not like you were giving me anxiety, but it was like, it just helps you. It constantly was rewiring my perspective into your lead character's perspective. And yeah, we, you know, we tried to have the score, you know, the score enters the film maybe six minutes before the first fit. (laughs) And, um, we wanted to let the audience like by the time that's happening, you are, by the time the first fit is happening, you know what type of movie you're in. And mm. um, we wanted to, the, the, the score really functions in two ways. One, it's like 
letting you into this quiet storm that's brewing um, really inside of Tony and also kind of give her a voice, an extra voice. You know, she's doing quite a lot with her face uh, and, you know, we're doing a lot with just the the background action and everything like that. But um, this other voice that Tony can use when she doesn't know what to say. Um, and that was really exciting to put that into this, you know, like I grew up, I listened a lot to like Peter and the Wolf and like oh, nice. the idea that an instrument is a voice in a way is true. Yeah. Mm. Oh my gosh. Did you have that book that had the yeah. audio? Oh my gosh. Yeah, <laughs> I did too. And then there was that short film that I think won the Oscar like 10 years ago called Peter and the Wolf. If you've never seen it, I recommend you, you check it out. Cool. Uh, it's like stop motion. I think it was from like 10 or eight, eight or 10 years ago. And it's just called Peter and the Wolf. Yeah. Check it out. It's really cool. Your movie, you know, pl- did the festival rounds. I think Venice and Sundance were the, the major ones. Yeah. Correct. Um, I guess, you know, your film, The Fits is what I still think of as an actual indie movie. Mm-hmm. And I think Sundance is, you know, I haven't been there, but I follow it. And I think what most people know of Sundance now is sort of the more starry, quote unquote, indie movies that have famous people in them. Like, it seems like movies like yours are what Sundance was built on, but they don't hype them up as much as they used to. So what's the experience for you, you know, from the ground level with your your tiny movie there. What was it like? Yeah. Well, we played in next, which was actually the section I really was hoping for. And I keep calling next the punk section of Sundance, <laughs> and no one stopped me from saying that, but um, <laughs> no, I really felt, you know, it's a non-competitive section um, and it's kind of new voices, fringe voices, um, what you might call a quote unquote smaller movie And I actually felt a real kinship with the directors in that category. You know, it was nice. We weren't competing against each other. Um, But I was also just super excited about their films. And, yeah, I felt like it. I fit into that narrative. And, um, you know, Sundance was super magical for us as a team. And I do think that it's, you know, it really kickstarted this huge wave of momentum Um, and I can't imagine being, you know, in theaters now without like that, uh, that real push from, from Sundance. So I do think it still is this huge, you know, it's, it's a brand, um, and it's a stamp of approval. Um, but it's also, you know, an experience for me as a filmmaker to, you know, I had never been to Sundance for anything. Um, and so to be there and to really feel like, oh, there is like a momentum and a movement and like this body of work that's outside of mine that I, that I'm excited about. And I don't know, it was, for me, it was really refreshing and, um, I was excited to be part of it. Anything next that's, uh, that you are anything solid that you're working on next, anything not solid that you're just excited about anything you can tell me? Uh, I'm writing again with, uh, Celia Davis, who's the editor of the fits and, um, I guess that's about all we can say, but yeah, it's a narrative <laughs> feature. So, um, I'm, and I like, it's keeping me up at night. I'm, I'm really, <laughs> I'm really excited about it, but, uh, but yeah, I think that, that, yeah, that'll, and then looking for other things, because I think, you know, being like I mentioned before, kind of thinking about sustainable sustainability in the mm-hmm. directing role, um, going back to zero between projects is, 
is is really hard. I, mm. I, I'm finding it hard. So, um, yeah, to kind of build something that's more overlapping and kind of thinking thinking really long term um, is what we're trying to do. So, so trying to maybe start uh, developing two and three. Um, and I am uh, really honored to be part of this program with the Sundance Institute called Film Two, um, which oh. they're supporting. Um, directors in their second feature and um that community has been just really generous and welcoming um and i think it's such a positive place you know because there are all these different anxieties about just like defining your voice and um you know when you make one film everything is so open in terms of who you are as soon as you make a second film you know that starts to narrow and starts to narrow and um I think just artistically those anxieties, it's really nice to have like a community where I can chat about those things. And those aren't related to financing or all these other huge <laughs> challenges that go with making a film, but really just as artists saying like, who am I? What is cinema to me? And I want to keep asking those questions and pushing myself. Wonderful. Anna, thank you so much for your time. Thank you've been, you. Oh, you've been so generous and I'm, I'm, I'm going to follow you and I can't wait for whatever you do next. So thanks cool. again. Thanks, uh, Sarah. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Anna. You uh, Be well, and uh, we'll uh, hopefully talk next time. Okay. Take care. Bye. Cheers. And in part two of the podcast, I'm joined via Skype by friend of the show and longtime L.A. film critic for Ion Cinema, Nicholas Bell to talk about the final film from Polish auteur Andrzej Zulowski, Cosmos, which opened in only a few markets this past weekend and will be rolling out later this summer before hitting VOD, courtesy of Kino Lorber. Zulowski, probably best known for 1981's brilliant psychotronic breakup film Possession, sadly passed away earlier this year. And with the release of Cosmos, there's no better time than now to discuss his earlier work and dish on his final film. Here's our chat. All right, so we are on the second half of the podcast here, and we are going to talk, uh, I guess, a fairly obscure director, a director that should be known more, I suppose, is fair to say. Well, I guess before we start, uh, we have a friend of the show, guest, uh, recent guest on the podcast, Nicholas Bell from Ion Cinema. Nick, thanks for coming on again. It's my pleasure. Hello. Oh, it's the pleasure is all, all mine, my friend. It's always a treat to have you on. Let's get into this one. Who is the director we're talking about? Andre Zulowski. Am I even pronouncing that right, Nick? You know, that's how I say his name. But uh, I was I, I talked to two Polish people recently and they couldn't understand what I was saying. <laughs> so I think I think they're they're um, back home where he's from there. That's not how it sounds. But I just say Zulowski. Zulowski, exactly. I mean, such an awesome name. Why, why not just go with that? Um, I know that. <laughs> so this guy is, um, the, well, I mean, the reason I have uh, Nick Bell, of course, with his endless knowledge of film, uh, always comes invaluable on the podcast. But this uh, this director, Zulowski, happens to be your favorite, correct? He is my my all time favorite. Yes. All right. That that is awesome. Um, because you're gonna you're gonna be you're gonna help us out. Because I like I said, I, more people need to know about this filmmaker. He's made some incredible films and just stuff that he makes the kind of films from what I've seen that really make an imprint on your memory. Uh, images, moments, sequences that just sort of burn a hole in your brain, and they're always gonna be there. 
Um, and of course, I think of, uh, I believe it was the first film we watched together. You you introduced me to this director a while ago, a long time ago. We were both living in Minnesota at that time. And yes. uh, I think we watched Possession, but um, it's possible you showed me another one of his films. But let's... You, let's you and let, I privately watched uh, La Femme Publique. That's right. That's right. And see, I need to watch that one again because it's not... that. It's I guess antithetical to what I was saying. I didn't, I don't remember it as well, but possession is a movie I very much remember. And, uh, uh, it is possessions, probably the movie that most people have potentially heard of. You think with him was, yeah. Um, and that's thanks to in the early eighties, it was part of the video nasties list. Oh, that's right. In the UK, right? Yes. Yeah. So that it was notorious for that. Right. It gained it's gained a, a cultish sort of uh, transgressive. It, it is a transgressive movie. It, it has these uh, you could see why it would be a controversial movie even today. It's still like I would say holds up pretty well as a pretty uh, n- at times nasty bit of work. But also, um, I mean, how better to describe this movie than batshit insane? Right. Like it and absolutely startling. Like <laughs> I've seen it. I own it. I have three copies of it. <laughs> and um, I also have the original French billboard that's in oh. eight panels that is not up yet in my house. But uh, uh, it every time I see it, I just am blown away, especially, of course, by Isabella Johnny's performance mm-hmm. uh, in the, the, that miscarriage scene in the subway. Like, the, yeah, you put it uh, well saying that, it's, that like images get burned in your mind watching his films. Yeah, and that sequence, I think people that have either seen the movie or maybe read enough about it have probably come across a clip of that that subway scene where Isabella Johnny, who, uh, you know, for context, she's she's in the Herzog Nosferatu uh, film from the 70s. She kind of had a, that was sort of her era, was the 70s and 80s, right? Was she in a lot of French films? Oh, yeah, she was in a, she was in a ton of stuff. She worked with a lot of top-tier uh, tours uh, from the period. And uh, I think she's... Uh, altered her face a bit now so she isn't in she isn't in much recently um people know who she is but but mostly from that period from that period she she, uh she's twice oscar nominated uh story of adele h the truffaut and uh camille claudel wow i didn't know that's that's awesome because her acting is and especially in something like possession and you also yeah, you got to give a shout out to her uh, co-actor in that movie, Sam Neill. Uh, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sam Neill from people who most people, in, at least in America, know him from probably Jurassic Park, I guess. Yeah. This is not that Sam Neill in this movie. And that's that's the important thing is, is you watch a movie like Possession and I imagine the other Zulowski films out there. And it's very evident that he's able to pull performances from directors or maybe just encourage them to do things they would probably never dream of doing in front of a camera. And uh, the performances in that film are just that that's, it's part of what makes it like sing, but also just kind of like the way he, he seems to give his actors free reign. Do you know much about his directorial style? Like, is that what did actors really like working with him for these reasons? Do you know, or, you know, I actually haven't read anybody. I haven't read any complaints like from a Johnny as, or um, the uh, the Polish actress, I forget her name, who starred in a movie called Shamanka, who gives a very similar kind of hysterical breakdown performance that, you know, you watch it and you're like, how <laughs> how did they even, to even go there in your head to get to how they're acting is, you know, <laughs> mind-blowing. Um, but not yes. like in, in the sense of like how Faye Dunaway hated working with Polanski and, you know, like all, the, all those things you hear about directors doing things to unnerve their performers um 
but there is a pronounced difference between the performance he would get performance he would get from women uh, like a Johnny than from women he was actually dating because he did five films with Sophie Marceau who he was with for 15 years okay. um, and none of her performances are uh, similar I, I would argue in any degree like he he held back I think oh. from forcing her to do certain things. Oh, interesting. So maybe his, maybe he didn't want the woman that was closest to him to, to he didn't want to like give her uh, the, the freedom perhaps to go full crazy or something like that. Cause right. I guess I think of Sophie Marceau and my limited, you know, stuff I've seen her in is probably more like she was in a bond movie. I think one of the Pierce yeah. Brosnan ones, I Braveheart. Think. She's in Braveheart. Yep. Yep. Always she, there you go. That role is kind of what I think of her where it's not fair to her as a performer, but she's always, she was sort of saintly in those roles or stayed and very kind of calm. And, um, that's interesting though. Is, is there anything of, from her performances in his films? Is there like one film that you would, with her performance, that is like a real standout from Zalowski? Um, in, in my top five of his, uh, the only one that stars her is The Blue Note, which is this very bizarre late 80s, or is it, uh, I forget the year, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about uh, Chopin, and <laughs> it's, it's uh, I, I believe Mondo Vision, who puts out, uh, is working on restoring all of his films, but I think they've only put out three or four releases. They're working on that next. Yeah. Uh, but the, definitely The Blue Note with her. And I have a, I have a friend that just, his favorite film of all time is uh, My Nights Are More Beautiful Than Your Days. Okay. That's, which is also with Marcel. Is that, is that his first film? One of his earlier ones? Yeah, I want to say that's like 89. Okay. Oh, okay. Not a, first, not a first film, but... No. Okay. Um, yeah, and Mondo Vision, I'm glad you brought that up. It's We were talking about it like off-air, essentially. Uh, they are a Blu-ray label specifically and only devoted to his films, correct? That, As far as I can tell, yeah, they haven't put anything else <laughs> Uh, and their website is just, uh, you know, I check it every so often. Uh, they take years in between these restorations, but. Well, I'll say they're doing a good job because I bought that. Uh, there's, you can get several editions as well. Like they're, they're going like full criterion level uh, quality, I would say with these, with the, the packaging and everything. And I bought the sort of cheaper version of possession on Blu-ray and it is gorgeous. It's like built like a book, you know, and you can. It's it's a very sleek, beautiful, nice design, but also I got to say that film looked amazing. I projected it on a big screen in a theater um, after hours at work one night, and it looked like DCP quality. It was, oh, yeah. Yeah. it was, it was awesome. So yeah, if you're curious about this filmmaker, or if you know about him and you're looking to get his work on, on uh, you know hard hard media, the, those Blu-rays at Mondo Vision are, I would say, be like Nick Bell and check it on the regular and see if you can yes. get those. <laughs> What is it about this director, his films for you, Nick, that um, leads you to, you know, follow him? Why is he your favorite? But why do you, you know, like, what is it that, that has drawn you in so much with his work? Uh, you know, there's just, there's nothing that compares to anybody's ever done, I feel, as far as the performance he elicits. And, you know, I'm, I've always been a fan of weird, offbeat, strange shit. And, <laughs> this is you know, true. Like, in Possession, it's, a, it's an allegory for divorce. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> You know, Sam, Sam Neill's wandering around West Germany trying to figure out who his wife um, was sleeping with while he was away. And it's this weird creature, like this slimy, weird, gross fucking creature <laughs> like that she has sex with. Like, I don't know. The, I, I feel like I'm a weird person that comes up with weird things. And then I watch his films and I'm like, oh, I would never, ever think of that. Uh, <laughs> 
his weirdness outdoes any of our weirdness, basically. Yeah, like <laughs> he is on his own level. He he is he's the kind of director that you can't and you've seen much more of his work than me, but I can still tell that he's one of those directors that he he should have his own brand. Like Zulowski is a style of filmmaking that only Zulowski does. Like if we have Hitchcockian as a term, there's no reason not to have Zulowski style, you know. And uh, Possession is great because it is a movie in broad strokes, a, a movie about a divorce. There's a lot of movies about the end of a relationship. But like you said, Possession is unlike any other. And that, that alone makes him exciting because he shows us and does things that we've never seen in cinema before. Which I think for, you know, I, I'm, I'm also a fan of the weird and wild kind of strange cinema. And thankfully, you know, we met and you've turned me on to a lot of the extra good weird stuff like this. Uh. <laughs> so I'm always indebted to you for that, sir. But um, that's what makes it exciting is we've seen the breakup movies. So why not do something that's a kind of quasi mix of like there's a bit of supernatural elements. There's body horror monster movie stuff in it. But also Possession has this um, – I've seen it in a theater a couple times. And uh, I don't know if you have uh, in a theater, but in a public space with like a crowded theater, people like there's a lot of laughing like they don't. Some people look at that movie and think like it's awful, like they're laughing at because they think it's bad. But I, I actually think what makes it funny is also what makes it great because it's this other it's not that it's cheesy or that it's bad acting. It's that it's just other like there's just no. Yeah. yeah, no one else is doing it. It's very it's exaggerated, of course, but there's something very moving about a Johnny's performance in that 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 like, you know, to use uh, cliched language, you know, that, you know, hits you in your core. Like it's very, (laughs) you know, (laughs) she's sobbing and screaming and there's eggs and milk and blood. (laughs) I mean, this miscarriage and you laugh because you're uncomfortable and, and, you know, there's actually uh, a YouTube Mash up to that Robin song, dancing on my own, <laughs> <laughs> with the that, clip. <laughs> which I, I unfortunately think of now when I see the film. But um, <laughs> yeah, and, and you know it's okay to laugh. Laughter doesn't mean um, that it's it's bad or that it's sloppy filmmaking. I really got turned on to him in 2012 when there were twin retrospectives in New York and L.A. Oh, nice! Uh, and this was before there were. Um, it was announced that Cosmos, that he was actually planning a new project then. Mm-hmm. Uh, those retrospectives are what helped generate, I think, funds and more interest in his work. But that's how I was able to see all of his films, because some are still unavailable. Uh, but I saw Shamanka, which is a 1996 film he did. And the same thing, like the, in the theater, the audience was so uncomfortable. And uh, I think it was a midnight screening, and there were people that left. But, you know, <laughs> it, it's a discomfort that I appreciate and enjoy oh yeah absolutely it's good to be uncomfortable in movies not everything is there to make you feel good or to escape you know it's a it's its own kind of escapism with Zulowski I would say like you escape into a deranged mind and that for the right kind of moviegoer that is thrilling so um you had already said it you mentioned the that these retrospectives helped uh, at least partially fund his his ultimately his last film because sadly this director uh, passed away at the age of 75, uh, February 17th of this year. And I imagine that was a sad day for you, except that um, at least he, in a weird sort of almost like how Kubrick, you know, finished Eyes Wide Shut and it was like it was out in the world and he passed away right after. 
kind yeah. of happened with Zulowski here, and um, that's uh, I think it's worth at least bringing um, you know bringing up Cosmos because it is going to open limited release uh, probably L.A. New York this weekend. It'll be Friday the seventeenth. Limited. I it's coming out through Kino uh, Lorber. I think maybe they'll do a VOD at the same time. Um, so you know it's going to be a small release for this movie. But if you can see it on VOD, I guess we should just get into like this being his last film. Um, what you think about it. you got to see an early you got to see it fairly early and oh, r- write yes. about it on Ion Ion Cinema. And I'd love to just know like your thoughts on this last film, Cosmos. And, um, you know, frankly, having just seen it only last night, I need you to tell me what the hell's going on in this movie. <laughs> um, well, so, you know, I was very upset because he won Best Director at Locarno for it in 2015. Um, and I tried to, I was at Cannes that year and it was on the market and I tried, I, you know, was made desperate, desperate emails to try to get into the market screening and they wouldn't let any press in. And then, you know, I probably wrote 50 emails to the poor people at Alfama and begging for a screener cause it was on festival scope, but not for press. Right. And, you know, they finally let me have a limited screening for a week and that's how I saw it. And then wrote my review from there and then I had to sit on it forever. Um, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't let me publish it until uh, it was released in France. So, I mean, you know, this is maybe uh, maybe a slight reveal behind the curtain of what it's like to be a working film critic. Oh, and, <laughs> you know, for, for you and me in terms of like, you know, the movies that we tend to cover and you, you write a lot more than me on Ion Cinema than I do on sites like The Playlist and stuff, but uh, you, you cover a lot of the stuff. You go to a lot of those major festivals, but... It can be used for some of these movies where Zulowski is a particular filmmaker that certain journalists, you being one of them, are extremely excited over. But I wonder what they're so protective over. Like, what did you ever get anything from them, or were they just trying to wait to figure out when the release would be? What do you What do you think it was that they were so cautious about? I, I think that yeah, they were cautious about it because they. I mean, it's his last film. It's very confusing. It's. Uh, I guess I would call it existential uh, and you know, people aren't going to gravitate towards it. That is, unless like the people that are going to go see it are people that are fans of the filmmaker. Yeah. Um, and it's his first film in 15 years. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people that he's not on anybody's radar. So I think they were very protective of it. And then also it, it got screwed in my opinion uh, on the festival circuit. I mean, Locarno, thank God programmed it, but like, it should have played at Toronto in the master section. I mean, this is, mm-hmm. you know, the programmer didn't like it. Uh, <laughs> like, it, it should have been made more available on the festival circuit as well. Um, but I, I think that they were nervous because the, the, the buyers watching it weren't enthusiastic. Right, right. Ah, that's that's just too bad. Um, well, it, it, thankfully, you know, the good, the frankly, the hardworking folks for probably very little reward over at Kino Lorber are like doing this kind of work still and putting, you know, they're they're a good distributor to be putting a movie out like Cosmos. So I'm glad it's in their hands. But um, why don't we, you know, for the folks that are able to see it, you know, lucky enough to be in a city where it might be playing in a theater for them. But, you know, for anybody that can see it on VOD, too, let's like just get in a little bit. Like what what did you take away from this movie? Because, you know, upon rereading your review of it, it's on it's on on, I am cinema now. Um, What what because you you were taken with the film. But I'd love to know because it is a it's a challenging movie like any of his work is. But also this just to get it going. This is a movie that really throws you into its story without any 
context and you're you're kind of catching up throughout the movie or at least I felt like I was so um help a brother out here man help me out uh, <laughs> well um I, I, for what we were talking about earlier I think it's filled with all kinds of quotes and name droppings in the film uh yeah the the, the main character played by uh, Jonathan Janay um says a quote from Tolstoy about one of the greatest confusions um, or one of our greatest mistakes is confusing the pretty with the good. <laughs> um, and I felt that the film is uh, that somebody, the, another character in the film says nothing can be explained properly. And I think he's playing with, uh, notions of, of fucking around with everyone <laughs> to boil it down. I guess the, the inability of, or impossibility of intergenerational communication, like the old versus the new world. There's lots of references about the, the that's old or this is ultra modern, or um, and how everybody has their own agenda and no one's listening to one another. And at the same time, um, living in a world that they're completely distracted by everything to the degree where they're inventing their own. Um, their own, I guess, cosmos would be the, what he's. Everybody's inventing their own universe and making up their own uh, meaning for everything to the degree that uh, language itself is in a state of severe decay. Like, like uh, Sabina Zima is the owner of this uh, dilapidated. Well, it's not dilapidated, but this faded bed and breakfast that never sees any guests. Right. And her, hus- her husband. Um, a character named Leon basically has his own pattern of speaking that that he calls, I guess, blurging, and 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 other other characters in it. Everything starts to degrade, including how they speak with one another and how w- words start changing and being perverted. Almost uh, like almost like the breakdown of communication. Like there are certain scenes that are like extremely memorable here where like early on in the movie that the lead character just to camera says his lines in like a Daffy Duck kind of like cartoonish duck voice thing. Like I guess that what you've just described really helped me understand even those moments where I'm like, what the fuck was that all about? You know, <laughs> and that this movie, like the other Zulowski films I've seen, has loads of moments like that. But I can definitely see the degradation of communication and how you're pointing out that we are sort of all, you know, if we look at that as a analogous to the online world where we are all creating our own little bubble, our own little universe, that's. I can see the statement he's doing, and then it's it's pretty playful and ironic, I guess, to set it in a sort of natural wooded area, like an old cottage type place that that doesn't really see business like it used to be. That that's that you've already helped me, sir. Thank you. Okay, <laughs> that's uh, what I'm trying. I'm trying. You know, it's not easy to distill his. I guess what we're getting at, it's not easy to just distill these movies down into little sound bites. It's it's in fact, it's a fool's errand, and. That's what makes him. That's what made him such an exciting filmmaker. I would say, right, right. Uh, like Cosmos, more than any other, I feel like he's being very tongue in cheek. Everything, everything has this, like, uh, not well, maybe subversive irony to it. Like the conversation about uh, Chaplin's Modern Times, the film, yeah. and uh, Sartre's uh, essay, and. Uh, <laughs> The mat, like uh, the main character, keeps dropping quotes from Tolstoy, and he, he, 
his friend who's this kind of fashionista who I assume is gay, played by Johan Libero, I think, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how to say his name, uh, keeps saying, oh, are those friends of yours? Each time he talks about these old dead men. Right. Uh, while well, well, new character, like there's there's references to Spielberg and uh, Luke Besson gets mashed up with Robert Bresson. That and, was funny. That was a great little joke. <laughs> and and the, yeah, um, Star Wars. Somebody the, a cat gets murdered because somebody went stayed out too late at Star Wars. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's there are a bunch of film references. So there's like and and mainstream film references, like you said, Star Wars and stuff like that brought up that 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 was the sort of like string that I could pull to get me through this first viewing. But, um, I think if, if you're, if you're inclined and I think anybody that's going to seek this film out is probably like us, is probably going to watch this movie again, you know, to try to, to try to figure it out better. It's one of those movies that you probably would be more exciting the more you watch it, or you're going to find something you'll, you'll learn, you'll like understand it better, but also maybe discover something new with every viewing. And that's something I can tie back all the way to, you know, his early work in possession where like every time I watch that movie, it's, it's, it takes on a new meaning for me. And I think those are the most exciting films. And also why I could see why he's your favorite filmmaker. I mean, my favorite filmmakers are the ones that I can watch their films again and again. That's just like such a valuable thing, especially in a, era where most movies and you know movies kind of by and large have always been this way but disposable you know sort of you see them you move on but um i think not with a director like zulowski so um you know reason enough to just to get on the podcast here and just to tell people um if you don't know who this guy is like look him up if you're if you're if you're a burgeoning cinephile if you're getting curious about other types of cinema zulowski's definitely one if you haven't heard of him yet um seek them out and see which ones might be of interest. And, um, I don't know, would you, would you say start with Cosmos? I guess, I guess you could, you know, maybe recommend, but I I don't know. Is there a better like, um, gateway movie for him? You think? Well, probably. And that's easiest to get a hold of is possession, um, that, which is my personal favorite. Uh, but there, there, there are copies of lots of his stuff now, but definitely, um, that I, I highly recommend on the silver globe, which, is a Polish production that it's it's a failed masterpiece. And then, I mean, it's this sci-fi epic that he based on a novel by his great uncle and the Polish authorities. He started filming in the late '70s, and uh, the Polish authorities uh, halted production. And he kind of cobbled together. About a decade later, he cobbled together what he had finished, and it's it's got some extraordinary things in it. Um, but also, oh, uh, I also highly recommend The Most Important Thing is to Love, which was a 1975, his French language debut starring Romy Schneider and Klaus Kinski and Fabio Testi. Oh, wow. Uh, Klaus Kinski is in one of his movies? As, wow. as this very flamboyant gay man. Uh, oh, man, that's incredible. <laughs> oh, I got, that's probably next for me then. Oh, yeah, definitely. That is, that's probably my number three on my list. Um, excellent. I think Schneider won uh, Caesar. One of her two Caesars for that. Yeah, the French Oscar, essentially. Yes. Um, and highly, like, I can't understand why that's not more widely available here. Like, it's just an excellent film. Um, oh, and his debut, which I think is only on Region 2, the third part of the night, uh, is also very good. Excellent. Well, there, you know, you, it's, it's been a whirlwind brief tour through Zulowski here, but uh, hopefully people are listening and have grabbed a notepad or are typing some of these. You know, but hell, it's easier to do these days. Just look them up on IMDb and catch those titles that Nick has brought up because 
Um, if anything else, if you're if you're feeling pretty bored with mo- you know movies these days, catch up with a guy like this because he will he will wake you the fuck up is what I would like to say. So, um, and and watch it with people. Yeah, seriously. And if you're lucky enough, like Nick, to you know, I've seen uh, Possession projected in a theater in Portland where I live, and you live, Nick. You're in LA, so you had access to these retrospectives. If another one comes up, and hell, I mean, I imagine they might do that again with Cosmos coming out, but also his his recent death. Um, I would say be on the lookout if you are someone uh, who likes to check out like you know repertory cinema and you're in a city that has it um, be looking for Zulowski stuff and it's totally worth it as as I hope we've cu- uh, gotten that point across if nothing else so um, why don't we leave it there my friend is there any other anything else people should you want to throw out there I'm sure you could talk about him forever I could I could I feel like there's so many things I didn't say but uh... <laughs> never never enough time that's true um, but no uh, thank you again for uh, inviting me on the podcast and uh, it was a pleasure yeah, you know, if we if we need a, if we need another excuse down the road, if something comes up news wise, we'll just we'll just do some more Zulowski. There's no reason not to. That's true. Oh, you know, I, I was thinking as I was preparing for this, like at the new De Palma documentary. Like, I would love for somebody to do. Uh, well, he's dead now, but you know, like something. <laughs> if, so, if only somebody had done that with Zulowski, you know, I would have been be serious. Seriously, yeah, you know that's the most exciting thing about that De Palma documentary is I'm like the they should make this for every major filmmaker. So, yeah, it's too bad he he wouldn't be there to talk on camera. But I bet you could make some someone could make a really awesome um, you know examination of his career and life and do a documentary still. But um, it would sadly be missing him in front of the camera. So that that's a shame. But uh, yeah, hopefully we can honor him at least a little bit by by pointing him out here on the podcast. So. Yeah, uh, Nick Bell, thanks again for coming on. We'll we'll have you on again soon enough, I'm sure. Why don't you tell people where they can find you online? Uh, you can find my reviews on Ion Cinema. That's ioncinema.com. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at Raging Bells. Raging Bells, that's right. Go find them there. And uh, Nick, thanks again for coming on, bud. And uh, we'll see you again next time. Okay, sounds good. Mm-hmm.